Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a great day. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to tell you, we have a surprise guest. Meredith Atwood, one of our number one most listened podcast guests is on the line. Hello, Hello. Meredith. Okay, so the reason we got you on the line today is because we are moving into a new year and New Year's come with tons of what I like to call excitement. Other people might call stress. You yeah. like that? Yeah. yeah, I think it's good. <laughs> yeah, we reframe. We reframe when we can. <laughs> right. And, you know, you have come up with this thing. It's really a pledge. It's called the No Nonsense Pledge, right? Right. The year. So tell no us nonsense. a little bit. Yeah, share a little more about that. Yeah, so 2017 was just such a ridiculous year for me. Like, it was so full of nonsense of every breed and every brand. So a couple of weeks ago, I started thinking, okay, 2018 is going to be the year of no nonsense for me. And then I realized that as I was talking about that on social media, everyone was kind of saying, yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to have nonsense either. And so I started thinking about what that actually means. And so I created this whole year of no nonsense pledge, which has like a list of bullet points just of how to create your no nonsense year and what we're going to do to, to make a year without nonsense, which is like get out of your own way and stop the drama and the gossip and stop participating in the drama and being kind to yourself and, you know, picking your own unique brand of nonsense and eliminating that from your life. And so yearofnononsense.com, you can take the pledge and we have a free Facebook group that people are, we've got over 500 um, who've already committed in one week <laughs> to do it. So yeah, it's just about, you know, kind of rising up and taking stock of your life and saying, Hey, I'm done with the, the nonsense and I'm going to be the best version of myself. So that's Oh, it. I love this. I love it. And you know, one of the bullets that you kind of give us as a suggestion is to forgive yourself for your past. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful one because part of the nonsense is that we carry around all these weird things and feelings about things that we've done that we can't change anyway. So wouldn't it be nice if we could just let all that crap go? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I I say that something like it's good to forgive the past but you don't have to go back, you know, because I think a lot of times we, we dwell on it. And then when we get to the point where you say, oh, well, I need to forgive. And I, but somehow we think that forgiving means that we accept it. And I think you can just, you know, ex forgive yourself for it and move on and don't go back, you know, just kind of oh. a forward motion type thing. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, speaking of forward, I am going to be a future guest on your yes. podcast. So you've got this incredible podcast. If anyone who's listening to mine, you are going to love Meredith's podcast. She also interviews incredibly inspirational people and you're going to learn things along the way. It's called the same 24 hours. Yes. We all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's what we do with it. that makes us happier and healthier and more successful. Awesome that for the pitch. <laughs> that is, Hey, why not? <laughs> if we can't promote ourselves in this crazy world, then I don't know what right. we're doing. We'll know who will, right? <laughs> exactly. So don't hide behind it. You know, there's no nonsense going on right. here. No time, no time for the nonsense. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks Meredith. And Thank now you. on, on to the show. All right. Um, our guest today is Megan Reamer, the founder of Jackson's Honest, a company that makes chips cooked in coconut oil. Megan is an incredible woman with a background in the corporate finance world who realized at some point that her quality of life was suffering, so she and her husband Scott decided to pack up 
and moved to a little town in the Colorado mountains called Crested Butte. Megan then proceeded to have a baby and another and another and another. It was when her first child, Jackson, was almost two that she realized something wasn't quite right. It started as muscle weakness, and by the time he was five, he'd lost so much of his motor function that he was living in a wheelchair. His condition went diagnosed, literally, until he was 14. Along the way, Megan and Scott took action by controlling one of the only things they could, what Jackson ate. They found that potatoes cooked in coconut oil did not cause inflammation in his body. Jackson's Honest started after they realized that this product could both help others and taste great, and it does. Um, Today, Megan is fresh off a successful Shark Tank experience, and the business is on the fast track to doing incredible things. However, and this is the human side, she's also mourning the sudden and extremely difficult death of Jackson on August 13th of this year. This is a big, powerful, emotional, yet hopeful episode that I believe taps into our humanity on all levels. Please take a moment to follow Jackson's Honest on social media and be sure to comment to win a Jackson's Honest gift pack on the Skirt Sports Facebook page The question we're going to ask, and we're asking, is if you could live anywhere, where would it be? And the point, what are you waiting for? All right, everyone, let's get on with the show. All right, so we're going to get it rocking. Yeah. You ready to rumble? Yes. Oh my gosh, thanks for coming over to my house here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's a far drive if you're living in Crested Butte, which you're not full-time right now, are you? No, we are not full-time. We came to Boulder uh, to explore some additional resources and educational choices for our kids, primarily Jackson, and ended up sticking around. This is our third school year here. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, are you from Crested Butte? No, I'm from Santa Fe. Yay, that's a cool town. Okay, what brought you to Colorado? The lifestyle. I've lived in Colorado for 20 years and most of that in Crested Butte. And just, you know, being able to combine sort of this work and active and outdoor lifestyle, it was the best place to do that. And so, and it was a compromise because my my husband was working on both coasts and it was an easy place for him to get to. So, uh, okay, so you didn't just like land in Crested Butte, did you? No, we landed in Denver because that was still accessible for him to be able to travel and me travel as well. I was still working. And so uh, pretty quickly after landing in Denver, we bought a second house in Crested Butte. And then I'd say over the course of the next two years after that, we just migrated there full time. Okay, so we got to go back in time even further because you keep mentioning this husband and you seem like you're my age. So when did this all happen? in here let's kind of go back so you're you grew up in santa fe Uh and you met your husband at some point along the way i met my husband in college so i was a sophomore and he was a freshman okay and so it feels like eons ago but um i was 20 he was 19 and that's that's why i'm approaching (laughs) my late 40s i'm in my late 40s i'm 48 Um, And so it's been a long time. And so, you know, we graduated from college, worked on the East Coast. He worked in finance uh, his whole career until very recently when he joined Jackson's Honest full time. But uh, he was just, you know, working on Wall Street and traveling a lot. And then I was also working in New York and and other places for my job. I was working for a consulting firm called Accenture and traveling frequently for them as well. And so we were in this place where we didn't really need to be in one place. We could kind of make a lifestyle choice pretty early and we decided to do that and come to Colorado. So lifestyle choice, I mean, people don't have to stay where they grew up, you know, where their job is. I mean, how do you, a lot of people feel confined, I think. Right. Okay. I'm working here. I'm on the East Coast. I may not love where I work, but I have to stay. So what made you feel that you could free yourself of that? I think we were just both in a position where we valued that more than staying on the East Coast and living there for us personally. Mm -hmm. So we had also worked our tails off for the, you know, previous six to eight years and felt like, 
we were in a position career-wise that we could continue what we were doing at the level we were doing it, but just not have to physically be where we were currently. And yep. so it opened up this door of, of opportunity as well as conversation around, well, if we could live anywhere, where would it be? And, oh, I love that. and how do we combine that? And so, you know, we landed on Colorado a long time ago and it's been a great home for us since. I love that question. And I, I pose it to everyone listening. If you could live anywhere, where would it be? I like that. Do you keep asking yourself that question or are you feeling pretty solid? I feel pretty solid in Colorado, but there are a lot of other places I travel to that I really like. So I can I can envision myself there too at some point. But yeah. I feel in you know, Crested Butte's a great example of this. It's a wonderful community. It's small town, tiny. it's close knit, it's mm-hmm. tiny. It's been an amazing resource and support network for us for everything we've done from from you know managing Jackson's illness, uh, which was undefined and undiagnosed for many years, to starting this business there and, and having that local support. And so I also continually question whether it's the right place to be because it meets certain needs at certain times of your life, but not needs at other times. And so you know it's really hard to start a career there, for instance. So kind of mid-20s, post-college, it's a great place to live and you know live this ski bum life and enjoy that fully, but it makes it hard to move to the next stage. Uh, from that place and begin a career and so you know it just it doesn't line up sometimes yeah I totally get that I do and in fact I think like for many of us when we ask ourselves if you could live anywhere where would it be there's like three places you're like this place is perfect for this part of me this place is perfect for what I'm going to do in the future (laughs) you know and this place is perfect for the other part of me and I think you know that's the ideal for all of us right Mm -hmm. that we find these incredible connections and places that we can call home and lay a foundation right and so you're here in boulder but you still have this tie to this incredible little community in the mountains and maybe we should you know i want actually before we go into like starting the company and having kids and all this great stuff that we do in our lives i want to know more about when you grew up in santa fe how did that shape you well it's just like growing up in colorado i mean it's a unique place to be from it's a unique place to uh, engage with the community. It's also, you know, what what you think is your community there and you think is perfectly 100% normal. And that's, you know, what the world is at age 10, 12, 8, you know. Um, you then go to other places and realize how unique that spot is in what for whatever reasons, right? Either culturally... Um, because it's got this focus on an outdoor lifestyle and everybody skis and everybody snowboards and everybody bikes and you kind of think, oh, that's all normal. That's what people do everywhere. And then you go to these other places and you realize, no, people don't do that everywhere. You know, people have a completely different lifestyle in New Jersey or California or Texas, right? And so, um, you know, it molds your perspective, obviously. And then I think it allows you to go to these other places and provide a spark of something else there, right? It, oh, it yeah. um, kind of opens other people's eyes to something you're bringing to the table and, and some experiences you've had growing up that are completely different. I mean, I went to college on the East Coast, and so that perspective of where I was coming from was very different, even from my husband's experience growing up and what they did outside of the home or, you know, even going camping or going hiking or going biking. You know, that was not... It was not something readily or easily accessible like it is here or in in New Mexico. Oh, and I just love this idea of your normal. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to get into what our normals are. I will tell you, as a former pro athlete who worked out all the time, I really thought it was normal to do two or three workouts a day. Like that was normal. And if I didn't do that, I was a slacker. And I kind of, in my mind, I was like, why aren't, why isn't everybody working out more? <laughs> You know, <laughs> but we just get into our own bubbles of what a normal mm-hmm. is, and the same thing's going to apply for being an entrepreneur starting a business. You know, correct? Yes. Oh yeah. So, um, gosh, you're around my age. How was Jackson your first child? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about like moving forward and becoming a mom. Yeah. Okay. When did that decision occur? Was it, or did the decision not get made? You just became a mom. <laughs> 
Uh, it's a kind of a loaded question, right? <laughs> um, no, the decision was sort of made, but it was also very willy-nilly. Um, but I, I think it felt like the right time in our lives. We'd come to Colorado. We'd sort of planted ourselves in between Denver and Crested Butte. We knew that was a really wonderful lifestyle and felt like, okay, things have lined up really well. You know, I was 30 years old. My husband was 29. And um, I kind of felt like any point from here on out is is nice timing. You know, we've we worked hard for, for eight or nine years. He was still working very hard and traveling all the time. I had kind of decreased that schedule a little bit, but was still a full-time employee of Accenture and um, but felt like you know we had some wiggle room we had some extra bandwidth to um, to look at starting a family and decide on that timing and you know we traveled so much the two of us and had these wonderful glamorous jobs that required us to be in all these other places and so we'd meet up in in San Francisco or we'd meet up in Hong Kong or you know we just had a really fun lifestyle so it felt like I've kind of done that, you know. I've I've uh, explored part of the world and and loved it. And now maybe it's time for the next stage. And so, uh, Jackson was born in two thousand one, and then I have another daughter who followed soon thereafter in two thousand two, and then uh, I have a daughter who was born in two thousand six, and then my youngest child was born in two thousand nine. Okay, so four kiddos, boom, mm-hmm. in a decade. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. Um. I do get that whole concept of like you have you lived a very busy crazy whirlwind life. You mm-hmm. traveled a lot. A lot of this is like travel too, right? Yeah, like you did and the experiencing travel. different mm-hmm. cultures, different communities. You know, seeing that there is this larger world, and and I wanted to be part of that. Like I loved that lifestyle I had, and I thought it was fun and engaging, and that was what I needed in my you know sort of early to late twenties. Yeah, so I am so relating because I did the same thing through racing, right? Mm -hmm. Traveled all over the world. But it's really interesting because in my mind, it was like, well, once you have kids, that has to kind of stop. And that's how my head is. I don't think it has to. Some people make it work. They just go, I'm just going to keep having the same lifestyle. I'm just going to drag a newborn around and kid. (laughs) And you can do that, I think. I chose not to because I was kind of done. I I was fine. I didn't need it. I wasn't craving it anymore. Mm-hmm. Is that how you felt? Like you were ready to move into a new phase? I was, yeah. yeah. I also dragged my kids around everywhere too. So I kind of tried to combine <laughs> both of those though. things. It gets expensive. <laughs> it gets less fun um, oh, yeah. the more you pile mm-hmm. in. You know, it sounds oh, maybe ouch. so kind of like, <laughs> oh, we're going to go to... Los Angeles for the weekend, or we're doing this, and then the reality of that is is sometimes quite different. Oh of, yeah, you know, getting kids to sleep in a new bed, and they're wound up, and you know, just sort of the the practical part of that is less, much mm-hmm. less glamorous than it sounds. Even okay. going camping, for instance, right? It's so much work as a parent to oh my gosh prep everything and get there right. and set everything up, and then you're like, wow, this isn't really relaxing. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when uh, when Jackson was born, did you know right away that something wasn't quite quite right? No, we didn't. You know, he met all of his milestones. He walked and talked and was this very, you know, normal, uh, happy toddler. And so it wasn't until he was almost two years old that we started to see some muscle weakness. And it was very subtle. And, uh, and, and almost, uh, we thought on some level we may have been imagining it because we were taking him to the pediatrician and saying, I was saying, you know, I don't think he feels that well. Like he just seems like he's lethargic and kind of tired. He, he almost seemed like he had the flu, um, or a touch of a Mm. cold or something. And, you know, I said, I, I think he just is sort of sensitive like his feet he doesn't seem to want to stand as much or he's just not moving in the same way but it was so subtle that the doctors kind of blew us off for quite a while uh, at least three or four months and and that muscle weakness started to increase where once there was a tangible manifestation of that once they could clinically see oh he isn't bearing weight on his feet like he was six months ago i think we need to start checking this out you know that's when kind of that ball started to roll well, and it's it's overwhelming too because you when he's two, you also have a one year old. What's your daughter's name? Ella. Okay, let's go through all the names. Who's the <laughs> uh, Ella, and then Olivia and Charlie. 
Charlie. Okay. And Charlie's a boy. Mm-hmm. But I love that name for a girl, too. Yes. Um, <laughs> he was going to be either boy or girl. It, it he was Charlie. Oh, cool. <laughs> yes. I love it. So um, so here you are, mom with two tinies, mm-hmm. right? And uh, now you're. it's hitting you that something bigger is going on. This isn't the flu. Right. right. Yes. So how do you take the next steps? To, first of all, like when you're getting pushback from your pediatrician, that's really tough. Like if you had diagnosed this earlier, would it have changed anything? I think it would have because they're able to diagnose it significantly earlier now. So Jackson had this very, you know, it, it turned into this saga, uh, this kind of epic journey that he was on because it was that very small, you know, subtle symptom over the course of the next few years grew increasingly uh, more widespread and severe. And so, you know, this then became a 12-year course to find an answer and figure out what was going on. Um, But in that first sort of when he started at two years old, by the time he was five, he'd lost enough motor function that he was living in a wheelchair. Um, And it was something that started in his feet and just gradually spread up his body. So over about a, you know, 24 month period, I'd say he ended up losing all of his gross and fine motor skills. And so, you know, we went from this toddler who was literally running around to, um, you know, our child living in a wheelchair and us feeding him fully dependent on us for everything and no answers. I mean, that was the most frustrating part. We were seeing physician after physician and specialist after specialist and taking him around the country to do that. And um, the doctors really were just scratching their heads and saying, we really have no idea what's going on. Clearly it's something. And so, you know, when that was happening for us, we felt completely out of control and powerless and, and knew that, you know, that he was going through these neurological issues clearly and had this neurological dysfunction, but there was also this GI sort of digestive um, component that was in parallel to the neurological stuff. And so for Scott and I, when we were watching this happen, we just felt like the digestive GI issues were something we might be able to control. And so we started to just focus intensely on his diet and whether there were things we could feed him that made a difference in some of those symptoms. And so that's really where that started. I mean, it makes so much sense because you feel so out of control there and you're not getting answers. I mean, that's always the most frustrating thing for anyone when they have a problem is no one can tell them what it is. Yeah. Once you know what it is, good or bad, at least then you, you feel like you can start to work on a solution. Right. I mean, I think when we were going through that, I remember saying to Scott, you know, even if they told us he had an inoperable brain tumor or, you know, something very tragic and devastating, it still would have at least allowed us to focus our energy and efforts on one particular course of treatment or foundation or, uh, you know, somewhere to direct all of the resources we had available to feel like we were doing something. I I hear you. I mean, how did you and Scott get through first of all you're still together yes you met 30 <laughs> almost 30 years ago you're going wow yeah um oh my gosh <laughs> can you believe that Whew. okay so it, i mean i'm just assuming that there were some rough patches here but like maybe i'm wrong no you're right <laughs> you're definitely right i mean there are rough patches in like a healthy right. you know sort of non-stressed marriage <laughs> totally, and relationship totally. um yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. You know, it kind of goes back to this question we were joking about earlier with how do you work together if Mm -hmm. you do with your spouse? And for us, we never worked well together. And it's not until this recent business that we've been able to figure out what each of us brings to the table and accommodate how we react and respond to anything, really, not just challenges or issues. But then we really we were not in that place like we were not in that understanding place and so you know we were um heavily stressed you know watching our son deteriorate and you know he's very logical and very analytical and i'm much more emotional and so it really does split along this kind of mars venus line Mm. uh, along some way and then you know so he would get frustrated with me with how i was reacting you know i'd leave doctor's offices just almost almost just sobbing so hard I couldn't move forward. 
And he was already in this place of, okay, we're going to move on to the next thing. We're going to, you know, keep focused. We're going to keep trying to help Jackson. And so he really supported me and, and Jackson and, and our daughter, Ella, and just this whole dynamic through most of those early years of watching this happen and experiencing this with Jackson. Um, and so I had to come to appreciate that uh, emotional detachment that he's able to bring to a situation and sort of that clinical perspective um, because it really kept things moving in the right direction and was a saving grace then. And so now when I see that emotional detachment and clinical perspective, I have to continue to appreciate it and recognize mm -hmm. the value it brings. And so, you know, it's been this this path of figuring that out along the way, but it is a, a highly stressful situation to be in. And I think one of the things that makes it really hard is that you you not only process uh, events very differently, sometimes, you know, usually there there's some difference between husband and wife or wife and wife or husband and husband and how they uh, approach uh, anything, but certainly challenges. And so, you know, for us, it was just kind of navigating through that when it was happening and then looping back on it. And, and you know, on some level, just having really thick skin because at the end of the day, he was the only other person that understood exactly what I was feeling. And so it's easy to lash out or just take your stress out on that person standing in front of you when you really don't mean what you're saying. You just need to release it. I know. You're right. And this is the person you care about more than anything in the world. And you can kind of abuse each other a little bit that way and take each other for granted. And it just says so much, this idea that you need to come to appreciate the things that maybe you used to resent. Yes. But embrace and appreciate because your goal with being with someone is not to try to change them. Right? Right. So did he appreciate your um, what you brought to the table emotionally? I think so, eventually. Yeah, he had to work on that too. <laughs> yeah, he had to work on that too, yeah. right? There was value in that. And he yeah. had to see where it was instead of just being what I think he initially thought it was, was a distraction, right? So he'd see yeah. me upset and processing and crying and you know, say, this isn't helping Jackson. You're not helping anything by doing this. But you know, for me, it was also really important to process those emotions while they were happening instead of compartmentalizing them somewhere and having them come out later. Gosh, you are amazing. I mean, when you're in it, I'm sure you weren't thinking this clearly. <laughs> you know, but you're right. It's so, perspective, yes, it was hindsight. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, during this process, right around the time that maybe you actually got a diagnosis, he was how old? He was 14. Whoa. When we got a diagnosis. Oh, gosh, okay. Wow. Um, so, no, it wasn't right then. You You had more children, though. I did have more children. So was that like, okay, let's just keep growing our family. It's not perfect. Like we have, you know, issues and struggles, but we want to keep growing the family. Like why did you have more kids? Yeah, it's a great question. People have asked me that. I think, we, you know, all of the testing we'd done with Jackson over the course of trying to understand what was happening, everything came back normal on a genetic basis. And so we firmly believed, and, and that is actually true, when we did get a diagnosis, this was just a spontaneous event that happened in Jackson, so it's not something he inherited. Mm -hmm. um, but we believed that then too, that this was not an inherited disease that he was suffering from. And so for us, I'd always wanted a big family. I probably would have had more than four kids, um, but that was all we could reasonably handle with the yeah. needs that Jackson had. Um, but it was also a way to keep moving forward, right? I yeah. mean, there were a few different uh, decision tree um, conversations around whether to have more kids. And, you know, one of them was that I didn't want this experience to be my daughter Ella's sibling experience only, right? So we, we had this child who was living in a wheelchair who was completely dependent on us for all of his care. And that provides such a richness and fullness to your life. Um, but I wanted her to have another experience. You know, I wanted her to have a sibling she could argue with and, and uh, you know, grow close to and have these experiences in a different level. And so it was really rounding it out for, for her and for Scott and I and for Jackson himself. I mean, he had so much joy from... Yeah, it's okay. Uh, from his relationships with his siblings and they were all unique and they were all different. 
And so uh, they provided a lot to him in a way that Scott and I could not either. Yeah, I can understand that. And we've got tissues here. I have. I okay. carry my oh, own good, now. Good, <laughs> good. So, so I understand that. I really do. I mean, there are days when I'm like, why did we just have one kid? What if something <laughs> happens to her? Like, I couldn't survive that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I totally get it. Okay. Um, what's this idea of a decision tree? <laughs> Oh, you know, know it's sort of it's sort of like <laughs> if yes, then this direction. If no, then this direction. And you kind of just keep, you know, it's sort of like I think a classic. Maybe it's a, a work related or a consulting related um, thing. Uh, but you know, you start with one box, and then if yes, this. If no, this. And then you kind of just keep um, getting more specific based on yes and no questions, and sort of get to this answer possibly. Oh, cool. All right. So we're going to have some people who are going to want you to consult with them, but you're a little (laughs) too busy. Let's talk about how Jackson's Honest started then. I mean, going back to the idea of control, you were focusing on something you thought you could control, which would be maybe the foods that Jackson eats and, yeah, so maybe share a little bit about how this all began. Well, it's just, it's all rooted in one thing, and that's uh, Jackson's illness. When we were watching this happen, it looked so much like multiple sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, some kind of inflammatory autoimmune disorder okay. mm-hmm. that we made an assumption that's what it was. And so it it's all rooted in trying to manage inflammation. And so for us in in understanding and, and making this leap, right? Okay, let's assume this is inflammation. Let's assume we're trying to control an inflammatory process and this inflammatory load in his body because it was such a slow loss of function that it really seemed like something was just slowly overwhelming him, right? Slowly taking over his body. And so we just started to categorize foods as pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. And we thought to ourselves, okay, if we can at least control what we're feeding him and what he's consuming and make it as anti-inflammatory as possible, then we're not contributing to a bigger problem. We're, We're trying to control the inflammation on a nutritional level. And that's really where everything started. Just very simple questions asking ourselves and and categorizing those foods of fats, proteins, and carbs as pro or anti-inflammatory. Wow. Okay. So it was like um, an experiment. It was definitely an experiment. A lot of trial and error. We could see he was at such a, he was very sick. And so he was at this elemental level that we could see within a few hours if something we fed him contributed to a greater neurological issue, right? And so he was having these um, symptoms that were, for instance, when you lose voluntary motor control, you get your reflexes come back. And they're primitive reflexes, like newborn baby reflexes. And so we were seeing these primitive reflexes in him, and then he wasn't able to move out of them. He couldn't move through them. So he'd get kind of locked in these reflexive positions. We could see what we fed him if they made those worse. I mean, th- this is sort of what we were tracking. If if that would make that worse, we thought, okay, we can't do that. Like, that's not helping. This is making this symptoms symptom worse. If we fed him something that didn't contribute to it or decreased it slightly in either frequency or severity, we thought, okay, well, we're on the right road with this. What else can we add to this particular dish or this particular food that makes it even more nutrient dense? And so it really revolved around the idea of nutrient density. Every ingredient we fed him had to have a nutritional value. And so we started to examine the label and what we were feeding him differently. And so Scott and I were already in this space. We, my husband was studied chemical engineering in college. That's what his degree is in. And, you know, for him, I think it was this eye-opening experience when he was interviewing for jobs. And it were it was companies like Procter & Gamble and Kraft. And, you know, they wanted chemical engineers as food scientists. And he just kind of started to look at foods differently. And we were already living in this, you know, we weren't, we were reading labels for artificial colors and flavors and preservatives and avoiding those foods. And we were already eating an organic diet even Mm -hmm. before Jackson arrived. And so I think, um, you know, it was taking that to the next level in trying to understand, is this a good carb? Is this a good protein? Is this a good fat? And is this something that's going to decrease inflammation in his body? 
Wow. Okay. So that um, I just wiped my nose, everyone, and then you reflexively wiped yours because did you think I was saying <laughs> that you had something hanging out of your nose? You know how no, that but I I was crying. I was like tearing up earlier, and I felt like I was still kind of dribbling oh, some too. of that out. I know. Um, so so coconut oil and Co- potatoes. Yeah. How did we end up there? Well, so we in in you know through that process of analyzing foods through that lens we basically were making everything from scratch and it was really you know a throwback to how your grandmother prepared foods and using things like lard and tallow and saturated fats that we were told to stay away from forever because they're anti-inflammatory they're a different beast than a polyunsaturated vegetable oil canola safflower those Mm -hmm. oils are going to drive up inflammation in your body and so that was the inherent we were just staying away from anything that would contribute Um, and then we also started eating the same way so it was very early paleo diet you know Mm -hmm. removing grains um, or or kind of you know on a ketogenic border as well and so um, you know we ended up having to make everything from scratch because 14 years ago you couldn't buy bone broth on the shelf. No. You couldn't buy jerky that was that had any quality to it and were, were good ingredients. You know, you couldn't buy sauerkraut that was raw, right? So we were doing all that fermentation. We were doing all of that stuff using collagen and making bone broth. Wait, and, and all of this in your little kitchen in Crested Butte? Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh my gosh. So like sourcing what, <laughs> what we needed to make, like sourcing collagen 14 years ago was hard. In Crested Butte, even yeah. harder. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and internet wise, like you didn't have Thrive no. Market, you didn't have Amazon, you know, delivering groceries. So um, it was a lot wow. of searching, but it was a lot of trial and error. And so we ended up making all these foods from scratch and continued to do that until we started to see, you know, a convenient form factor show up at Whole Foods and King Supers, right? And um, and they were things we could buy. So finally we could buy bone broth in a box on a shelf and and it was a good quality. And these chips were something that still weren't showing up on a grocery shelf. And as that time went on and we continued to make them by hand, I think Scott and I just looked at each other or I sort of planted this seed in Scott's head really around, why don't we do this? Why don't we start a chip company and cook them in coconut oil? We can't be the only people looking for, you know, a healthy snack cooked in organic coconut oil, right? And so that was really the start of scratching our heads, seeing if it was something we could do. My husband was still traveling from Crested Butte around the country for his job, and I had four kids. And it was not ideal as far as uh, what we had access to living in such a rural place, but we both felt really strongly that we had this story to tell, and it was Jackson's story. And we thought we could connect with other people, other parents, other consumers, just anybody else who wanted to listen to what we'd gone through and maybe save them some time and and energy in what we learned. So when was this? That was 2000, late 2011, early 2012. And how old was Jackson? Jackson was 11. Okay, wow, Mm -hmm. okay. Whoo, so this is what, five-ish years ago? Yes. And um, you have blown up. We have been really busy. <laughs> it's been so cool. So I first, um, I mean, I saw your products, right, on the shelves, because we live in an area where there's like 12 Whole Foods within like 20 <laughs> miles, right? Um, so, and and all the other natural markets and stuff. So <clears throat> I'd seen you guys out there, but then I read an article in the Denver Post maybe like a year ago. Oh, it was earlier this year. It in was. February. Uh-huh. Yeah. Almost. So close to a year. Yeah. And um, and I thought, whoa, this is a strong woman entrepreneur, and she's got a company of food, A, that I, I can't imagine anyone would not want to eat it. It's like a universally awesome food. It's like people talk about um, the alcohol industry. It stays strong in a recession or when things are booming. Mm-hmm. Potato chips, right? <laughs> it's like a commodity. People like them. That's right. <clears throat> um, and... And you have a purpose, mm-hmm. you know, and the story behind what you do matters to me. And it matters to so many people listening. I mean, they'd rather buy something that they believe in, right? Right. Than something mass marketed that a company creates to make money. Right. I agree. I mean, I think that's what we were blown away by initially with that response. And you know, we were putting out something that we were feeding our kids and that we would eat ourselves. And 
we were making them by hand. I mean, we were renting this space in a commercial kitchen in Crested Butte. We were buying the oil. We were buying the potatoes from the farmers that we knew on the Western Slope in Paonia and Hotchkiss and those places. And it was very much a collective effort of, of people um, as our suppliers and as people helping us fry chips, right? And so I think, you know, we were just completely... We underestimated the amount of people that were A, looking for something like this product, and B, and more importantly, I think, the amount of people who connected with who we were as parents, what we'd done with Mm -hmm. and for Jackson, and then what he was struggling with and what he was going through. And, you know, what I've learned since launching Jackson's Honest, because it was very much a concerted effort and a big decision to decide to share this to such a so publicly and though in a wider audience and and it was still very raw i mean you know we'd processed a lot of the emotion around what we had experienced with jackson and that he'd lost his motor skills and was living in a wheelchair i mean that was a real daily effort and and part of our like the fabric of our life so it wasn't like something we'd been through and it was over it was still very much you know something we were dealing with on a daily level but uh, I think that we were just stunned by the amount of people who were also in that space of looking at their diet and analyzing what they were eating to see if it could help manage anything, like something medically, something behaviorally, you know, some challenge that they were going through as well. Wow. And they taste good. I mean, you can do everything you want, but if it doesn't taste good, it's still going to be a tough sell. You're right. So um, let me ask you, as far as being a mom, like how do you describe yourself as a mom? Oh, gosh, that's a really interesting question. I don't know, like your philosophy or what kind of mom are you or where does it fit into your priorities in your life, right? Right, yes. So... It's priority number one. I think the interesting part is that over the past few years since starting the business, I went from being a stay-at-home, full-time, hands-on mom to this evolution of a full-time mom and full-time employee of Jackson's Honest. I mean, it takes up a, a disproportionate amount of my time. I now travel a lot for work as well. And so my kids have had to all adjust to this. They've been wonderfully supportive, but um, it has changed some, you know, the percentage of time I'm able to do certain things either at school with them or for them um, and whether or not I'm home all week long. And so I have a great husband who supports what we're doing 100% and um, and is a completely hands-on father. And so... What I know is happening when I'm not there is exactly what would happen when I am there. Um, But it is a challenge to make sure that I am devoting the right amount of attention to what needs it. And sometimes, you know, my kids get the short end of the stick and sometimes work gets the short end of the stick. Sometimes I get the short end of the stick or my husband. And so, you know, I just try to do the best I can every day. And if it, I go to bed at the end of the night and think, hmm, I could have done that better. I just try to do it better the next day. I'm pretty easy on myself. um, And I don't carry a lot of guilt around what I can and can't do. Oh, I like that. Because guilt is definitely a very common emotion that most people have at some point, usually daily. And it's a wasted amount of energy that we spend thinking about things that we wish we did or could have done or could have done better. You're right. It's interesting. Yeah. So Jackson was finally diagnosed um, at 14. So a few years after you started you know, decided to take Jackson's Honest to another level. And what was the actual diagnosis? He had Icardi Gutierrez syndrome. And so it's named after two physicians who discovered it, Icardi and Gutierrez. And it's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So the the acronym is AGS. And it's a rare autoimmune disease. There are seven variants, seven different types of mutations, one through six, so they're literally called AGS1, AGS2. One through six are inherited, and AGS7, which Jackson had, is just a spontaneous mutation. And so that's why it also took longer to diagnose because they actually did whole genome sequencing and Mm -hmm. had to find where that mutation was 
and then you know sort of backpedal from where they found it to whether it was what was causing the problem so you finally have a diagnosis and and the diagnosis i'm assuming was that he was not going to live a full life we didn't know that okay. there was no prognosis okay so there are some kids who are older than Jackson um, who have a diagnosis of AGS mm-hmm. and they are much more medically fragile and, and complicated. So Jackson, while he lived in a wheelchair, was very healthy. Uh, he was actually sort of one of the, mm, I don't want to call him a poster child for AGS, but he was certainly one of the healthier kids and didn't have any chronic issues that we were tracking. So he lived in a wheelchair. We had to do everything for him, but he didn't have a feeding tube. So we fed him daily. Um, and he didn't have any pulmonary or cardiac or you know any other issues, even neurological issues, except for where the inflammation was residing. And we knew where that was. It was in his basal ganglia. For some reason, his immune system was attacking his basal ganglia um, as part of this process. And so so, you know, he was, for all intents and purposes, you know, this healthy child like my other kids. I mean, we weren't seeing the doctor very often. It was, you know, we weren't in these acute places where we had to rush him to the hospital ever um, to take care of anything. So it was very shocking um, when, you know, things didn't go the way we thought they were going and um, and changed the course, right? Um, yes, absolutely. You know, I think as parents, we are, there's like a protection gene that suddenly appears in us, right? Maybe when we're young, we don't care as much. We're more reckless with ourselves. But when we have kids, we suddenly want to protect, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you, how do you, uh, I don't know. How do you handle that when you realize that you can't protect your kids forever? You know, I mean, did you, were you holding on to that hope until Jackson passed away? Or, you know, at some point had you said to yourself, I need to, I need to release a little bit or let go a little bit because I can't control everything. I can't protect forever. Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, I, we didn't have any warning signs or lead up to Jackson passing away. And so it was suddenly and completely unexpected. So I hadn't, you know, he wasn't in hospice care. He wasn't struggling with something even in the weeks prior to passing away that we had any insight or had any idea that that, that it was going to be this sort of catastrophic, fatal outcome or event that happened. So I wasn't prepping myself or my kids or, you know, we weren't having these conversations as far as they were concerned. He was just like they were because he was incredibly healthy. Right. Uh, So I think, you know, when, when we've had to process this, his death and try to come to terms with it, Mm -hmm. it's been a lot of sort of I want to say almost Tibetan or Buddhist or sort of Zen space that we go to with it. Well, I mean, we can pause anytime too. Yeah. It's okay. Um, Maybe I'll interject for a minute here because you mentioned like you, there were no signs, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, you were coming off of this incredible high with the business and this is from what I read, you and I haven't caught up on this yet, that you know you had gone out and decided to try your luck on Shark Tank and had a great experience there. You had just done some filming for the show, correct? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so especially when you're riding high and you're feeling that momentum, it, the last thing you expect is something to come crashing down. Yeah, it yeah. did. And it came crashing really hard. And so the question about you know, prioritizing and creating that space, you know, for me, just like any death of someone close to you will reprioritize, reset, you know, what your perspective is, that part of my life has been completely adjusted. Um, 
you know, it's been really important for me. My son died almost four months ago. And it's been really important for me to put my kids above number one and just be there whenever they need it. So during the day, if they're feeling overwhelmed at school, I go get them. You know, it just allowing them the space to grieve and, and feel uh, is priority number one for everybody. Yeah. But, you know, just making sure that they're they're okay with what's happened and how to move forward, right? That they're not stuck in this place of feeling anything negative toward this significant life experience that they're going through. So when I said, you know, that, that we kind of go to this Zen place, it's really about um, feeling like grateful and blessed for the time Jackson was with us. <laughs> Sorry. Um, feeling grateful and blessed for the time Jackson was with us and feeling honored that we were able to take care of him. Um, feeling honored that we were able to take care of him and, you know, had this richness in our life that, uh, that you can't replicate, that um, that he chose us and that we learned a lot from him. Okay, so we're going to pause for a minute here. Come back, okay? Do you feel okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we're back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a absolutely beautiful place to go when something tough happens. And everybody listening has had tough things, not something like this, because every experience is different. I think what you're saying is like there's so much respect in the process and in allowing you and the people who closely touch Jackson to have their own experience. I mean, grief is an individual thing, isn't it? Yes, it yeah. is. And it's unrelenting. There's no break. Um, but I think, you know, we just keep trying to stay in the positive place with it. And while we miss him terribly, we feel like... Again, we were lucky to have him in our lives and he taught us a lot. And, you know, we believe he was here for a purpose and he completed that purpose. And yeah, yeah it was time to go. Let's talk about purpose then. Let's talk about the legacy. Let's talk a little more about this amazing company and the difference and and great positive energy you're going to bring to so many people's lives as you continue to grow it. Yeah, I mean, I think Shark Tank is a great example of an opportunity that we weren't quite sure that we wanted to take. I, it really presented itself and landed in our lap in a way that felt like the timing and things had lined up outside of our control and we needed to go after it. I mean, how did that happen? Um, <laughs> Most people try hard to get on Shark Tank. You're kind of like, eh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I wasn't that nonchalant about it. Um, but it was something, of course, people had said to us from the very beginning, right? You have a great product. You have a great story. You guys should go on Shark Tank. You would kill it on Shark Tank. They would love you. And, you know, it never felt right to me. It didn't feel like that was the right energy for what we were doing because I, I've watched it and I feel like it can get negative kind of oh, yeah. quickly. Oh, yeah. And I didn't want to put myself in a position to feel that because I wasn't, the business wasn't at a place where we could suffer from some kind of comment or feedback that wasn't fully positive mm. and i think just personally i wasn't ready to open myself up to that kind of criticism oh, because i just guys, feel like i wanted it those guys can be so brutal they can be awful and Terrible. so i was afraid of them yeah. quite honestly and <laughs> you and, didn't look like it uh, well i wasn't that day but <laughs> leading up to it i thought oh, these guys are kind of tough like i don't know about this and um but we did we got this opportunity they um they love that story in the Denver Post that you referenced. And mm -hmm. we started to have a conversation and go through the application process. And, you know, there are many places along the 
path of working with them that they cut you or that they say, yeah, no, this isn't going to work. You know, you have to send them an audition video, for instance, right? And you have to Skype with them and they need to see you face to face. They need to hear your voice. They need to make sure you translate on television in addition to what your company is and your product and um, what your story, your company story is. They need to believe that you personally will also be able to connect on some level or that you'd present well. And so there are different layers of their analysis on how they pick and who they pick and what they're going to offer to the Sharks. So it turned out to be a really fun experience. We went to Los Angeles in late June and did our pitch to to the investors. And then all summer, you know, you leave there and they're very noncommittal and they said, we don't know. We don't know if you you did a great job and I'm glad you got a deal, but we don't know if you're ever going to show up on television. So just keep going and working with your shark and make the deal happen. That's how it works. Yeah, it's very noncommittal and it's not scripted. Everyone asks me this. Is it scripted? And it is like a dogfight in there sometimes. I mean, it was the first kind of 60 to 90 seconds is scripted where you're introducing yourself and your business. And then it's just a free for all of questions and they start interrupting each other. I mean, you can kind of see that sometimes on TV too. Mm -hmm. That's truly how it is in there. So you got, um, okay, so who did, when you went in, were you guys like, who do you think might bite? Are we, are you sort of targeting your pitch toward a specific shark? Cause you all know their strengths, right? And you happen to have a really cool guest shark that day, which is really lucky for you. Um, What were you guys thinking? We weren't angling for any shark in particular. We were pretty open to whatever was going to happen. So we went there ready to make a deal. We knew what economics worked. We knew kind of where we Mm -hmm. could stretch it a little bit if it was the right shark to work with. We knew where we had some leeway, but you know, we just went in there ourselves, right? We had no hidden agenda and we just wanted to come across as the normal parents and mom and pop business that we are. And so we kind of just didn't want to look like ridiculous on TV. I mean, you bring up a good point because all we really can be in this life is who we are, right? Mm -hmm. Yet we spend a lot of time trying to be like, well, how can I make myself look bigger? Or, you know, for anybody on social media, how do I make my life look more awesome? You know? (laughs) Well, your life is what it is. Like, either share it or don't, but don't try to be who you're not. And I, so I love that approach. It's so cool. So was there a lot of fighting about you guys? No, there wasn't. Most of them were like, I'm out, I'm out. No, you know, it took about... I'd say we were in there for an hour talking to them. So I'd say about 45 minutes into it. Then they had to decide if they were in out. But it was a very engaging, respectful, nice conversation up until, you know, they went down the line and said, okay, this is why I'm out. Or this is, you know, why this doesn't line up with my strategy. Or this is why I hate the food business because Mm -hmm. the margins are really tight and it's hard to be profitable or whatever. And so... In the context of that conversation, it all made sense when they said, this isn't for me, I'm out. And so it wasn't rude, it wasn't abrupt, it was just the natural flow of the conversation. And we did get lucky, Rohan was on our panel and he's a great guy and he has consumer packaged goods experience like more than we've, you know, we'll ever know really. Like he's forgotten more than we'll ever know. And so, So we, oh, uh, we we are lucky to work with him. He's a great guy personally and professionally. He has this wide network and um, and he's introduced us to a bunch of folks in it and it's made a difference already. Oh, that is so cool. So actually, I just want to say when I watched the clip, there's like a, a small clip you can watch if you don't want to watch the entire thing. Because what were you guys on TV? Yeah, we were on yeah. October 1st October uh, on 1st. the season premiere, which was about six weeks after my son had oh, passed geez. away. And so it was this very, you know, oh, chaotic, God. emotional space. Um, but it was all good. We were excited about it. It was kind of a nice pivot to be able to focus on something really fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we were on again this past Sunday, December 3rd. They re- re-aired it. Oh, gosh. See, I'm so out of it. But I did get online and search. And when I watched, I cried. I don't know why. It's just that connection. It wasn't like an emotionally sad episode. They didn't even, they didn't mention him on the clip I watched because 
it was just about the negotiation. Yet when you and Scott were facing each other and deciding if you're going to be in and at what valuation, and I saw you mouth the word yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, they're doing it. Oh my God. So as like a woman entrepreneur and as a mom and as you know, knowing your story, like I just started bawling oh, that's watching sweet. the clip. <laughs> So everyone, we are going to embed um, the Shark Tank episode, whatever I can find online, and uh, we'll put it into the show notes to make sure you come over. You know, we've been talking forever. Okay, so you don't realize we've been on for over 50 minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. And I just want to keep going here. But, you know, I think we should start to wrap it. One thing we talked about was maybe um, let's do a giveaway swag bag. Definitely. We need to get Jackson's Honest out there to people who haven't tried it. So what, what should we make them do? Oh my goodness. Oh, I know. If I could live anywhere, where would it be? Yeah, that's a great question. Let's do it. Yeah. All right, so you're going to look for a post on the Skirt Sports Facebook page, and uh, and I'll make sure that I link to it as well from the show notes. Okay, so you're going to put, if I could live anywhere, where would it be? And you're also going to listen to this amazing episode, which you already are because you're listening right now, <laughs> right? Um, so uh, so let's, I'm, I got a couple more questions here at the end. <clears throat> so... This is a word that I think a lot of people have a different interpretation of, okay? And with everything you've gone through in life, I mean, I kind of focus this on your business, could it, but it could be focused on anything. What does success mean to you? Success to me means gratitude and happiness at what I'm doing. It's perfect, absolutely. I mean, really, there's no numbers in that answer. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, do you have like a, a mantra or a word or something that you live by, especially when things get tough? We had this magnet at our house on our fridge forever, and it's something I bought right when Jackson started to go down this road many years ago, and it's Winston Churchill quote, never, ever, ever give up, and... It still sits on our refrigerator and it's really the motto and the mantra that Scott and I have lived over the past, you know, 16 years with Jackson. Okay, that is amazing. And I'm gonna tell you a little personal story. Um, over there on the wall is a photo of my husband, Tim, winning Hawaii Ironman. And in his very first speech in Kona, that is the quote he led with. Isn't that cool? <laughs> That's great. It's amazing. <laughs> and it is. It That's is, the universe saying something. It is. And it's just it's just saying that things are going to get rocky. Even if it's a one-day race, big deal. Eight hours out there, you're pushing your body. Or if it's a lifelong you know, push to keep within yourself and keep embracing life even with the, the tough stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I yeah. love it. Um, is, are there any questions that, people never ask you that you wish they would ask you oh my goodness anything that you just absolutely want to get out here oh wow gosh that's a tough one I have not been asked that question before <laughs> um you know I think people have wondered about Jackson himself I think you know, I, I was asked this question by, of all people, the Shark Tank crew that came to Crested View and taped our family. And they said, what do you want people to know about Jackson? And this was, you know, just three days before he passed away. And um, we had no idea what was coming. And it was, you know, my answer was that he's a healthy, happy 16-year-old boy. You know, he loves Harry Potter. He loves Star Wars. He likes pretty girls and smiles at them. He likes fart noises. You know, he loves all those things. There's a lot of personality. And so, you know, for me, it's this message around don't judge a book by its cover and, you know, be open toward experiences that you think are not in your wheelhouse or that you would never entertain the idea about because they can really turn into something wonderful and something unexpected but um but fulfilling and full of joy wow that is amazing you've been you've had a lot of life <laughs> really i feel old some days that's for sure <laughs> 
Well, you look amazing. Thank you. All right, we're on to the last question I ask every guest who comes on the show. And that is if you could leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Never, ever, ever give up. Perfect. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I've had a great time. That was such a powerful episode across the board. Uh, Megan is an incredible person. I respect her so much. I learned a lot from this interview. I personally am really interested in the concept of the decision tree, a tool that can help us make decisions when our previous tools and abilities don't seem to allow us to move the dial. I also love her mantra, the quote by Winston Churchill, never, ever, ever, ever give up. This is so true in sports, business, marriage, parenting, and life in general. All right, everyone, before you go, be sure to pop over to the Skirt Sports Facebook post from January 2nd, 2018 and answer the question, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Why? Because we're trying to make the point. What are you waiting for? Okay, then you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and I'll see you next week.